This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. talk about your fake baseball game or are you too upset by the mistakes that you've made i've made mistakes mistakes have been made welcome to overdue it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and i am playing a baseball sim i've only <laughs> i've only really just learned how to play it and i'm not very good at it and it's kind of bumming me out he bought this baseball sim and it's making him more upset than any real thing <laughs> I've seen make him upset in like a while. Yeah. And also, he had to explain what the difference between this and fantasy baseball was. And he said, and I quote, this is his fake baseball, <laughs> not fantasy baseball. Yeah. It's, um, it's the, imagine you were playing a video game of baseball and you liked the parts where you got to swing the bat and hit the ball and throw the pitches as your favorite players. Well, what if you took all those parts away and it was mostly baseball spreadsheets, the game? That's what I'm playing. <laughs> Moneyball, the game. It is actually Moneyball, the game, and I'm pretty bad at it. I overpaid a dude because I didn't really understand what a qualifying offer was. And it really just... I don't know how to hire coaches. <laughs> like, I think some of my teams don't have enough people. This sounds really fun. It sounds like a fun one. And you asked me why I don't just like start over. Because right, clearly because I now did a you bad understand job. more of the rules of the game. Yeah, I think the thing though is that if it were real life, I would be learning on the job. And sometimes you make mistakes and you have to learn from those mistakes. But it's not real life. Are you saying I guess the charitable the charitable interpretation of what you're saying is you'll feel better if you win having pulled yourself out of this early tailspin. Yeah. Than you would if you quit and start over and just did it right from the beginning. Yeah, just like this podcast, mm -hmm. I think. So uh, aside from your fake baseball was this podcast is about books. Yeah. Every week, one of us reads one of them and then tells the other person about it. And you come along for the ride because this is fun, I guess. Buckle up. For you. For you somehow. So, Andrew, what did you read this week? I read The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. This was a Patreon recommendation from Georgia. Thank you, Georgia. The per Thank a you person, to the state of Georgia. State, which mm -hmm. I think factors into this book a little bit. So um, I had heard of this book because I think it was on uh, President Barack Hussein Obama's last summer reading list. Yeah, so it was... Um it was what it was. it was published in 2016 and it won the 2016 National Book Award for Fiction and was long listed for a 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. But more importantly, it was recommended by Oprah. Oh, Oprah's Book Club 2.0. Correct. Yeah. And uh, and that. Yeah, that was a big deal. <laughs> sure. Um, it also won. There's the actually he there was a um, an interview or something somewhere. I read. Oh, um. In material, this is from the Sydney Morning Herald. In material terms, Oprah's endorsement changed his life more than winning the Pulitzer Prize. Almost a million copies of the Underground Railroad have been sold in the U.S. alone. Yeah, it wasn't just listed for the Pulitzer. It won the Pulitzer. Like, it got the thing. Did it? Yeah. Well, someone needs to update this Wikipedia article. <laughs> Hold on. But yeah, I didn't know that Oprah's... Uh, book club had rebranded itself she, she's still operating in the, the like the deep state yes like behind <laughs> she doesn't actually have a show anymore but she's got like that whole network and she's got i don't know she's got all this influence that she's using to influence all of pop culture so, yeah still. to sell books for people so mm -hmm. uh, mr whitehead was born in 1969 and yes. he grew up in new york city I think his parents ran like some recruiting firm from what I could find in interviews. Um, he went to Harvard 
and he then would go on, you know, after he started uh, his literary career to teach at a number of universities, including Princeton and NYU. And he's been the writer in residence at a couple universities. Um, I did find it interesting. He worked at the Village Voice, which I thought had just uh, like closed, but it actually just stopped doing a print edition. So rip in peace for the print of. I guess it did win. Hold on, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do a little <laughs> bit of good right now and edit this Wikipedia page right now. While okay, talk. all right, good. Um, while he was at the Village Voice, he started working on ideas for novels, um, and his first novel was called The Intuitionist, published in 1999. It was the novel of the year for uh, in Esquire, I think. Um, it got a great review in the New Yorker. It was a finalist for the Hemingway Penn Award that we've talked about a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a work. This was like when I encountered his catalog, I realized I did not know much about this book because I did not realize that he had written. He's written stuff that's sort of genre y and speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I was expecting a more straightforward literary uh, experience. So the intuitionist is like an alternate not named New York, New York City where like elevators are super important and it's like a high concept. There are two schools of elevator inspection um, and it follows the first black female inspector uh, and she has to kind of wrestle with the different schools of thought and the various stratification of society. And I'm like, oh, okay, you you have a wide array of interests that you are cooking together into this book. <laughs> um, but based on that and some of his other books, including uh, the book that followed that, John Henry Days, he did receive a MacArthur Grant in 2002. Um, and his other books include Apex Hides the Hurt, Sag Harbor, and Zone One. Um, this book, as you said, was published in 2016, but he said in a number of interviews that he first thought of it back in like 2000. He woke up from a nap and found himself thinking, what if the Underground Railroad was a real train? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He he said in a New York Times interview, I sat on the couch thinking about it, but it seemed like it would require a lot of real research, and I just wasn't up to it. I mean, I I completely and totally get that. Like, (laughs) if you're going to take on such... um, like heavy subject matter you don't want to treat it lightly yes now where the um i'm not going to say it's playful but where like the elasticity between like reality and and fiction um comes up in this book aside from the literal train that the underground railroad becomes um like he he spends a lot of time playing with like time i guess like like when things happened and how they happened he's he's um and I think I've seen seen this brought up in, in reviews of the book, but he, I think, is trying to convey, like, the reality of things without sticking necessarily to the literal truth of things. So yeah. we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But yeah. but, yeah, like, most of the stuff in the book isn't literally true, but it gets to the experience of slaves and then later of, of freed uh black people in the united states and yeah we just go from there yeah to put it in his words there's um he said i went back and reread a hundred years of solitude and it made me think about what it would be like if i didn't turn the dial up to 10 but kept the fantasy much more matter of fact i wanted it to be like the slave narratives i read where you get a very matter of fact contemplation of all these weird and horrible things that keep happening and then he told city lab uh as what you just said i'm not sticking to the facts of american history but i'm sticking to the truth Um, So I want to I want to make sure we keep track of how the book like presents things that feel like facts or feel like they shouldn't be facts, but they are like that seems like an interesting thing that this book is up to. Mm -hmm. Um, What else? Uh, It is the book is slated to be an Amazon limited drama series. Andrew, I know how much you are excited about TV ventures. Just everything um, Amazon touches turns to gold. Yeah. Uh, it will be. It is supposed to be directed by Barry Jenkins, who's the guy who co-wrote and directed Moonlight. Um, but no other words on that, as far as I can find. Um, before we get into the book, Andrew, I feel like it might be worth just like recapping a little of what we're talking about when we're talking about the Underground Railroad, from like what the audience 
may or may not know or expect. Like, and not just so our audience, talk about but the book's audience. The actual Underground yeah. Railroad? Yeah. And, and, like, the real one and not the Underground Train? Not the Underground Train, no. Um, so the Underground Railroad is this thing that's that's happening in the United States before the Civil War. So in the in the like early to mid 1800s. Correct. And it is this like informal network of uh, like abolitionists of freedmen um, who are working to help runaway slaves get from the South into either somewhere in the North or often like somewhere up in Canada where slavery had been, had been abolished a little while before. Yes. Um, there are also other, you know, routes that go, um, into Florida at which, which early on, like before I think 1821 is when Florida became part of America. Like earlier it was, um, it was not a slave state. It later became that way though. Um, I think there was a, a leg of it that went into Mexico, mm-hmm. I want to say. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it kind of went all over the place. And it's called the Underground Railroad because it's a secret. Like, it's metaphorically underground and not literally underground. And then um, the people who worked together to run it used the language of trains and of railroads Yes. as, like, a code to to obscure what they were actually doing. Yeah, so you'd get stuff like... You know, referencing cargo when it was actually like, you know, people. Um, but you'd also get like people were referred to as conductors and going to different stations and um, agents and station masters and stuff like that. Um, the thing that makes it necessary for folks who don't know, um, like the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1793, which required free states to help slaveholders recapture people who had escaped. And then there was a compromise in 1850, which strengthened that law. Um, and actually, like, some of that helped to create a, a, a really unfortunate reverse Underground Railroad, where mm-hmm. just, like, any black people would just get taken and sold to the South because... Yeah, because we, we talked about this a little bit when we um, covered the book Kindred yeah, yeah. a few months back. But... Um, yeah, like the only thing really keeping these slave catchers from grabbing any old black person and taking them south and selling them or like quote unquote returning them somewhere was like papers. And that is not much of a safeguard at no, all. No, not at all. And and you see um, that like you see unfortunate parallels to how uh, migrant and immigrant communities are treated today where it's like and white well, and whitehead yeah whitehead himself has talked about the parallels between that and um like stop and frisk yes and, and you know other citizenship questions that are predominantly visited upon people of color by white law enforcement officers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then just other like there's like the Dred Scott decision, which which also made things worse because then people couldn't sue for their freedom and, and were not treated as citizens, even if they were technically freedmen. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is like it was a cell network like you shouldn't know too much about what other people were doing in it. Because it could right. be you infiltrated didn't want, you didn't and disrupted. Want, right. You didn't want one person talking or one person getting taken down to like break take the down the thing. rest of the network. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I lastly, I just I hadn't seen this before. Apparently, there was contemporaneous critique from Frederick Douglass about the Underground Railroad, mostly just because too many people knew about it. Like it was, he ref- he said it had become the Upper Ground Railroad. Because I, I would say, I, w- I would imagine it's like people were proud of the work they were doing, which meant that it was getting acclaim, which it, from his critique means that they were just emboldening slaveholders to be even worse about coming and getting people. That was his experience as like someone who had escaped and was looking back on it being like, what if we do this work, but we don't pat ourselves on the back about it? Um, a lot of what we know about the railroad like firsthand comes from an 1872 book by William Still called the Underground Railroad Records Um, and that is a collection of like actual facts narratives letters and um, other things about people who ran it and who traveled on it Um, you may have heard of uh, Harriet Tubman who was a a woman who helped free over 70 people along the Underground underground Railroad and then there is a uh, Quaker abolitionist named uh, Levi Coffin, 
who helped more than 2,000 people, along with his wife, Catherine, helped more than 2,000 slaves escape along the Underground Railroad. If you come through Philly ever, you can actually find William Still's house. It's like just south of South Street. Um, yeah, I like think I've seen that sign. Sixth or Seventh Street. So check that out. Yeah. So there's a. I, I grew up in Ohio, and there's a lot. Like if you look at the map of the Underground Railroad, oh, sure. like Ohio is right in the middle of it. So there are a lot of... Um, historical sites and like houses and things that I think you can visit that yeah. that were I think they got put the in, in the national yeah. park system sometime in the 90s there's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a bunch of me- memory of it um, yeah. let's take a quick break and then talk about the book okay uh, Andrew we have another Patreon sponsor this week Oh, no, not again. Oh, no. Uh, Krista, who was kind enough to support the show, um, would like us to talk about the Imaginary Bookshop. Um, They are purveyors of literary gift sets, bookish teas, and other mysterious items that they pair with a carefully curated selection of excellent books. Uh, According to their website, over half of their staff is made up of cats. They have a gift wrapping option called Fill It With Spiders, and they really love Shirley Jackson. There anything else from their website that you want to shout out, Andrew? There's also a not spider option. <laughs> I just feel like it should be it should be noted. Okay. It, yeah. For those of you who don't care for a box full of spiders. It's not mandatory. No. Um, yeah, that's imaginarybookshop.com. They have a lot of cool collections of gifts uh, centered around concepts like fairy tales and creeping malevolence. <laughs> yep. Um, and yeah, what's, what's the deal though? What, what can listeners of Overdue get when they go to imaginarybookshop.com? They can get a gift for your weirdest friend or yourself. Uh, if they can get 15% off their purchase also with a discount code overdue. Um, and it, it exists only online right now. Uh, but you should follow them and see if maybe they pop into the physical realm sometime soon. Mm -hmm. They were at ReaderCon earlier this month. But you've you weren't there. You missed but you it. You missed it. You had your chance and you blew it. So make it up. Make it up to them. Go to imaginarybookshop.com and use the offer code overdue to get fifteen percent off your purchase. All right. Whenever you're ready. I am ready. Are you ready? I'm probably ready, you know. Well, then good. Tell me about the book. Oh, we're back. Yeah. That's <laughs> just kind of forcing it into happening. What do you what do you want to know? I want to know about the book, like the way the show works. Oh, the book me... The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Yeah, are we starting the show again? I feel like I'm having trouble saying the word word railroad. Okay. I keep being like railroad. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to railroad you into one way to say the word. That's no, that's I'm just like I'm just doing a weird job. And if you're at home thinking, man, he's really saying railroad weird. I am going to have to say it 900 more times. So I just want you to be I just want you to know that I'm you know, I'm in this with you. <laughs> so my first question, Andrew, mm-hmm. for you, the guy who read the book. Is the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. I know that he <laughs> based the book, you know, he, for some of his uh, research, he like read Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. He read some of the oral histories from the WPA. He read Beloved by Toni Morrison, New Jim Crow, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but I, from what I can tell, it is not a straightforward story of someone escaping slavery. What is it? Okay, so it is the the book is is structured into a bunch of different chunks. Um, for most of the time, we are following the uh, story of this uh, woman named Cora, who is a, a young woman who was born into slavery on a plantation in Georgia and was abandoned at a pretty young age by her mother, sure. um, who ran away and stayed ran away like she was not recovered by by any of the slave catchers who went after her she is a um she is a success story i guess um but cora has never i mean she ran away when cora was like 10 and cora mostly just resents her for not being around majority of the book well not just for not being around but for not taking her with her oh sure yeah like she, especially once she gets away and starts on her own journey, she gets even more upset with her mother because like, you know, I could have, I could have done this. Like it's, 
it is the worst thing she possibly could have done to know what I was, you know, to know the plight of an enslaved person. Yeah. And to run away from that and leave me behind. Yeah, sure. Um, but we'll we'll get into because there's a there's a bit of a, a bump in that in that story. OK. A wrinkle, I guess, that we'll, we can get back to later. But um, most of it is about Cora, like traveling from state to state. And um, I'll just let um, Whitehead speak for what he's doing in in the different states. Uh, this is from an NPR interview with Terry Gross. He says, uh, and I thought, well, what if every state our hero went through as he or she ran north was a different state of American possibility? So Georgia has one sort of take on America and North Carolina, sort of like Gulliver's Travels. Uh, the book is rebooting every time the person goes to a different state. So this is like this is how he was thinking about it pretty early when he was trying to get from what if the Underground Railroad was a real railroad <laughs> to what, what if the- it was a metaphor and then we just kind of magical realism our way into into having a bigger conversation about about stuff so it is not just an alternate history he has created a a, a way to explore multiple alternate histories well so it's and it's not even ultimate, ul, ultimate well, it's history. not the ultimate history at ultimate all history is a game that you play <laughs> on a lawn in college where you're all just like chucking history books at each other. You can't call it that. You have to call it just, ultimate. It's just ultimate. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it is alternate history in that the thing, like often things did not literally happen the way they are depicted as yes. happening. But let's take South Carolina as a, uh, as a, and as, as an example, this is the first state that Cora makes it to after she leaves Georgia. Okay. And the people of South Carolina have abolished slavery in, in a way because they are sort of just buying up the contracts of all these slaves and just and like technically making them like the wards of the government. But mostly they are free to live and to work and to do stuff on their own. OK, but they also are being secretly experimented on by doctors who are like trying to oh. track the course of stuff like syphilis and they're trying out new medical procedures like uh, tying their tubes as a like both as experimenting but also as a means of population control because like you can't you like if you have too many of them then they're then you're just gonna make things worse for yourself and that's that's based on stuff that literally did happen like what was used as pretext for like the eugenics movement but not for you know another seven or eight decades after whenever the book has taken yeah because i think the tuskegee experiments started in like the 30s or 40s or something mm-hmm. like that and that was mm-hmm. like like you're alluding to it was a study of hundreds of black men with syphilis and they were like went they purposely left untreated and denied healthcare access and lied to um and not only did it like wreck the lives of those men and their families but also just create a broader like ethical morass in right in medical Mm -hmm. science and a huge amount of distrust with pop with segments of the population okay so that's a that's a way to nod are there other like modern echoes in that south carolina or is it mostly about the like we have a population that we have freed um but we the the people who run south carolina are still like using them every i mean every state you don't spend a ton of time in any individual state and every state kind of has its own thing i don't know like i don't know if gimmick is exactly the right word but every state kind of has its own thing that is going on in it that you should be aware of. And then the thing like is discovered and then Cora moves on to the next leg. Like a series of, of awful twilight zone episodes. Sort of. Okay. Um, and then in, interspersed in between these bits with Cora are, um, some real letters that were issued by people whose slaves had run away. So um, I think there is a total of four or five. The last one is Cora's, and it is fictionalized, but the first four are all, as as Whitehead says, they're all authentic. And part of this um, 
part of this program that like scanned and, and made digitally available a lot of different uh, um, letters looking for runaway slaves. And they are like classified ads, right? They're but like, more or less. Yeah, yeah. They're like, hey, for 50 bucks, here's this person and when they ran away and what they look like and the name they answer are to, they, the name they might be going by, that kind of thing. This is a little like uh, persnickety, but like are they presented as endemic or not endemic, but like diegetic to the story, like Cora, I guess by putting hers in the book, they are like part of the world of that story. But is she like reading them or is she she's not? No, she's not reading them. They're just little, like, for us. they are little interstitial things spread in between the rest. And then you get these other slightly longer bits that are told from the perspective of other people we run into. So there's this guy who she, uh, runs away from the plantation in Georgia with named Caesar, who you learn a little bit about, but he, you know, he falls by the wayside. You don't get his full story till later. You hear from her mother eventually. Um, you get a bit from the perspective of her grandmother who was kidnapped from Africa and brought over. Like that was that was when her family, you know, made the made the crossing. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, but most of it is is telling the story of Cora running away and and being captured and running away again and Well, so walk and, uh, me yeah, through that's what you're spending a, most of the time Walk doing. me through a little bit of the beginning of the book then like does two uh, two questions. One is more about the story and one is about your experience. When do you the reader know that it's not just a a, a work of historical fiction? Like do you find that out pretty soon? So the Georgia section of the book, I would say, is the one that is the most literally true in insofar as it follows the basic shape of a of a sort of this is what slavery was like okay. narrative. So you get a little bit about the politics within the within the slave community in a, in the, at this plantation, which is called. Um, what is the name of the plantation? Randall, the Randall plantation. Okay. Um, and it's and like who is who? Like what the hierarchy there is? Like who is what the hierarchy well. is? Yeah, you get you get bits about you know they're weird where people are set on each other. Like a quote from the book: "Take it out on each other if you cannot take it out on the ones who deserve it." Sure, sure. Um, so that's explaining like the the tension between slaves it it describes and then one of the reasons why whitehead wrote the book from the perspective of cora a woman is because slave women had a unique burden in the form of like sexual assault and and being impregnated by their owners and and by the the people who oversaw them yep um yeah okay so what is the like build up to her leaving does that that follows does it follow like an arc you've seen in other stories or is it pretty kind of specific to her i think it's it's a little specific to her so she's a um she's kind of an outcast even within this community like she lives in this this separate little shack called hob where a lot of the more i think mentally unstable and um, like physically damaged people live. Okay. And even the other slaves sort of eschew people from Hob because they're just seen to be crazy. Okay. Basically. Okay. Um, but Cora, like she's, she thinks about her mom a lot. She's got the streak of independence, which comes from maintaining this little plot of garden. That's, it's not very big, but it was her grandmother's and then her mother's and, now it's hers and she has fought other people to keep a hold of it. Just like trying to own something yeah. in this, in this place where everything of any value at all has been totally stripped from you. Like, sure. Yeah. Like actual, actual things and also like intangible stuff like dignity and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a sense of safety and peace and you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and there's this there's this one incident where they're at a birthday party for this older slave who has who says it's his birthday every couple of months because he doesn't know. But like everybody is just like so uh, willing to just forget things and try to have a good time for a little while that they don't really begrudge him. OK. It. But um, a couple like the the 
sons of the guy who owns the plantation come down and one of them is just like mean and one of them is like truly sadistic and, and just looking for a reason to just like looking f- to invent a reason to like wail on somebody. Yeah. So he does that. And Cora, uh, I think the book says that the human part of her acts before the slave part of her can, can like remember not to. Oh gosh. Um, but jumps in the way of this guy, you know, taking his punishment and like, that combined with the fact that her mom ran away and stayed run away, um, like brings her to like get earns her special attention from yes. the more sadistic of the of the two. So Caesar is has been thinking about running. He's been um there's this guy in town, this white shop owner who um notices that Caesar like does woodworking and says, Hey, I can sell a few things in my shop if you want. And Caesar's, you know, like distrustful of this guy, but um, he has, he was like we talked about. He was a a um, freed man who was captured from okay. uh, Virginia, I think, from one of the more nor- northern southern states, and then brought down. And so he wants to get back. Like he, him running is kind of a foregone conclusion. And then he sees something in Cora because she is, you know, kind of apart from the rest of this group. That tells him, you know, she would, she would make it too. Okay. And so he asks her to run. She says no. And then a couple months later, he they asks go. her again and she says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And do and they, they, I mean, there are other things that happen in that, yeah, <laughs> in that space of time, but yeah, they, they eventually like he plants the seed and then later she decides, okay, yes, let's do this. So at this point, is there any window dressing that, to, that suggests to you that it is not just historical fiction has anything like cropped up technology wise or no, nothing nothing in particular the the first moment you think wait is this <laughs> what's going on is when you get to the underground railroad stop and it is literally a train underground oh dear <laughs> and for the first one you're like well like maybe part of it was like i haven't really <laughs> thought about the underground railroad in a while like yeah. maybe there were little bits of it that that were but then like every stop is a little train station with like different characteristics but and, and it's just this like patchwork of of hand carts and actual trains with like passenger cars and by the time you've done it a couple times you're like yeah i'm pretty sure <laughs> i'm pretty sure this didn't happen this way yeah, so another snippet of that NPR interview that you referenced, um, he says, this is only a couple lines earlier, I think when you're a kid and you first hear about it in school or whatever, you imagine a literal subway beneath the earth, then you find out that it's not a literal subway and you get a bit upset. It's like, okay. I don't know if upset is the word well, that I would use, that's, but, yeah, but he's I also, understand what he means. Yeah, and, and he's speaking from it, like learning the history of it and what people did, and yeah, it's hard to might be hard to wrap your brain around all those codes as a kid but so this points out to me an interesting like part of just the structure of the book and the style of the book is like by blurring a bunch of reality and introducing a bunch of things that are not real it seems like it creates an opportunity for you to feel uncomfortable with what you do and don't know about this period of history like it is deliberate maybe it's not deliberately disorienting you but like even kind of what you just said you go like is this what happened i know that was my experience okay. reading it i don't i don't know that he intends to do that but i think if you do only have like a passing familiarity with the subject and you feel that way that that is not a um like a totally unintentional side effect i don't know yeah okay um but yeah so so that's your your first note of it and then by the time you get to south carolina it's you do get to a point where you're like this feels authentic in that i think it is it is telling a real story about how different kinds of of racial oppression exist and i think that is part of the trouble of getting people to recognize racism now is that mm-hmm. you have to like a move beyond a white guy on a plantation with a whip 
or a white guy in, in a the hood 60s, or something. Or a, yeah, or someone like with a hose in the 60s. Like, it's not just bad words. You have to, yeah, you have to, you have to get past this idea that all racism is perpetrated by evil like overtly evil people who look and seem and are evil. Yes. <laughs> in all of their like words and actions and motivations. Yeah. Yeah. Um and and so the South Carolina section starts to dip a little bit more into the like the ambiguity of it. Um North Carolina, which is the next state, um is pretty strongly unambiguous. Okay. <laughs> so it is another state that has abolish slavery in its way but its way of abolishing it is just to kill every single black person and everyone who would try to help them oh on site again the root problem or not the root um worry being if we let enough slaves if we let enough freedmen in our midst thrive and reproduce until the population is is larger than the white population we are eventually inviting some kind of calamity. And so we have to, we have to lock that down. I see. So they hang people from trees in a, um, along a sort of route that is called the freedom trail. And Uh. every Friday in the town square, some fresh victims are brought up and executed in front of everybody. Very performative to dis- you know, not only like encourage other terrible behavior from you know white people, but also to discourage the mere existence of non-white people. Okay, yeah, and and Cora is watching this all happen from a vantage point in a teeny tiny attic. Like the the guy who ran that underground railroad stop died, and his son who is who like wants to help but is more of a wiener about it (laughs) oh no he's just he's just like more gutless um he comes and he comes to basically leave a note that says hey i cannot do this anymore sorry god and he finds and he finds her you really hope yeah yeah i feel like i i'm thinking back to other stories that involve like uh like the book thief and other things like that where it's like you're keeping someone secret for their safety and man you just i just read those stories and go i hope i would do that like i hope i'm not a wiener but you don't know Ugh. yeah you you don't you don't know and, and that's, that's why that's, those characters need to exist in fiction cuz it's like that's yeah. going to happen yeah ugh cuz we are all in our way products of our time yeah, and yeah. some of us are like trying to be <laughs> better products than others i guess i would say but but yeah you can't say what you would do if everybody else around you in your entire orbit was acting a different way and if you were scared of like your kids or your cleaning lady like turning you in yeah you just gotta hope you just gotta hope there is very much like a zero tolerance policy in place so yeah get caught once and you get hung and stoned in the town square like it's 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 not a great, uh, not a great policy, I would say. No. So, what happens after North Carolina? So, running through all of this, we're you're getting a um, a a picture of this guy named Ridgeway, who is, and I'm I didn't I thought this when I was reading it, but I didn't put it into words until I saw some other review talk about it. But there's like a, a Cormac McCarthy esque character in Ridgeway. The slave catcher in in how he is like pursuing her. Yeah, he's pursuing her, and he's just like a real man's man with a tragic past, but he's still a big jerk. I've I've also I saw a, like a Javert comparison as well, but perhaps if he is, you mean Javier? Yeah, no, I, no, that was a bad tweet by somebody. Um, but yes, uh, like the the relentless pursuer out to to get theirs like so and, what is and that like a like, like a mccarthy character he has like a, a kind of code and Ugh. i don't know like there there is something pseudo respectable about him even though he is really really awful and and I, terrible I, he at I, least like he at least wears it on his sleeve i guess i saw whitehead reference that like he put a little bit of it because he grew up in new york and he put a little bit of new york in this guy 
or at least like had him live there for a period of time. Does that factor in to how he thinks about his work that he's like, um, has he been to the North? He has, he has been to the North mostly in service of his, you know, of his, of his job. But, um, part of what he enjoys about cities is like the thrill of the chase and of like hunting these people down through, you know, social connections and, and getting past the law and just like getting his, you know, getting his job done every time. Part of the re- part of his interest in Cora is that, um, you know, the, the Randall people really, really want her back. And part of it is that he is the slave catcher who failed to bring her mother back. Oh, okay. So it's personal. Yes. I see. Um, so Ridgeway just misses her in South Carolina and then accidentally catches her in North Carolina while he's on somebody else's trail. Oh. Yeah. Um, so he is taking her not directly back. So they go to Tennessee, which has been kind of burnt to the ground. Like the part of that they're in has been burnt to the ground by like this wayward brush fire that just kind of got out of control. So the theme, I guess, of Tennessee is less like is less specific to slavery and to black folks in America, but more about just how nature doesn't care about anybody. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and that's so, like, it's just yeah, kind of sure. like do your best in this wilderness, this like hateful wilderness. I don't even know that it's that it's that it's just like, man, every, it, everything sucks. Okay. <laughs> like, that's the apocalypse state. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so a freedman ends up helping her escape from Ridgeway and then okay. we head up to Indiana, which is the, um, the last state I think in the book that she's in and in Indiana, which is, which is a, a Northern state, but did used to have slavery in it. And there are a lot of, and this is, a, this was real. I read about this when I was, um, reading about the underground railroad itself, but, um, there are a lot of Southern settlers in Southern Indiana. And that made it, you know, not an ideal place to be if you're running away from, yeah, yeah, from, from your place in the South. Sure. Okay. Like, I think like if you look at that map, Ohio and Indiana are right next to each other. Yes. But Indiana has way, way fewer routes running through it than Ohio does. Oh, okay. And I think that might be part of the part of the reasons just like compare the southern borders of the of the two states and i think you can you you get a sense of of what's going on okay but um so in indiana she is on this farm it's run by this guy named valentine who is black but is one free and two mostly passing okay um and they're part of this big community mostly of freedmen but with an increasing number of stragglers who have come up from somewhere else and who are, you know, finding refuge. Like they are welcome to stay as long as they are willing to do a little work. Mm. And on this, in this place, they are having some big debates about, okay, how best to advance the interests of, of black folks and of like the cause of abolition in the United States. And they touch upon this this debate that I think has happened a lot of times in in various ways throughout you know American history. But there is basically an argument on one side that is you know we need to fight for immediate change and immediate justice now versus you know we need to be more gradual and do this in a way that white folks are going to be comfortable with. Okay. Um, so I can, I can just read. Yeah. Um, so there are these, there are these two fellas. Um, one is named Mingo and then the other is named, um, Lander and they are on the two different sides of this debate. So this is, uh, 
Mingo. Uh, Mingo opened with the story of his journey, the nights he spent begging the Lord for guidance, the long years it took to purchase his family's freedom, with my honest labor one by one, just as you saved yourselves. He rubbed a knuckle in his eye. Then he changed course. We accomplished the impossible, Mingo said, but not everyone has the character we do. We're not all going to make it. Some of us are too far gone. Slavery has twisted their minds and imped filling their minds with foul ideas. They've given themselves over to whiskey and its false comforts, to hopelessness and its constant devils. You've seen those lost ones on the plantations, on the streets of the towns and cities, those who will not, cannot respect themselves. You've seen them here receiving the gift of this place, but unable to fit in. They always disappear in the night because deep in their hearts, they know they are unworthy. It is too late for them. Um, And then... Lander says, Brother Mingo has made some good points. We can't save everyone, but that doesn't mean we can't try. Sometimes a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. Nothing's going to grow in this mean cold, but we can still have flowers. Here's one delusion, that we can escape slavery. We can't. Its scars will never fade. When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think you would sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick, yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion too, yet here we are. And America too is a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that it is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there is any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty, yet here we are. Um, I'm supposed to answer Mingo's call for gradual progress, for closing our doors to those in need. I'm supposed to answer those who think this place is too close to the grievous influence of slavery and that we should move west. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what we should do. The word we, in some ways, the only thing we have in common is the color of our skin. Our ancestors came from all over the African continent. It's quite large. Brother Valentine has the maps of the world in his splendid library. You can look for yourself. They had different ways of subsistence, different customs, spoke a hundred different languages. And that great mixture was brought to America in the holds of slave ships to the north, the south. Their sons and daughters picked tobacco, cultivated cotton, worked on the largest estates and the smallest farms. We are craftsmen and midwives and preachers and peddlers. Black hands built the White House, the seat of our nation's government. The word we, we are not one people, but many different people. How can one person speak for this great, beautiful race, which is not one race, but many, with a million desires and hopes and wishes for ourselves and our children? Um, For we are Africans in America, something new in the history of the world without models for what we will become. Color must suffice. It has brought us to this night, this discussion, and it will take us into the future. All I truly know is that we rise and fall as one, one colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know the way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall and we will arrive together. Um, and that's the end of that bit, because after that, uh, things go, things go bad as often happens in the book. So that, that kind of sounds like it's like uh, this, his, you know, it's, it's both the real world and the history that Whitehead has imagined has a, it, it has to have hope because their time marches on. So we work for something. Right. Uh, but I imagine, as you just said, it doesn't end that way mm-hmm. things go bad yeah does it leave you with things will always be bad or does it leave you with that is a terrible price to pay for something we can work towards i mean it it ends with with cora's story and cora not knowing where she's going but getting away from like Ridgeway comes back, he's found her again. He and his cronies like burn this this Valentine farm to the ground. Ugh. But she gets out and she manages to deal a mortal blow to him mm. in this like hidden, mostly unused branch of of railway. Sure. And while he is like laying and, and babbling out what is probably his last words. He um like she she jumps on a handcart and just starts going and she doesn't even she doesn't know if the tunnel leads anywhere and she doesn't know if it does lead somewhere like where it's gonna go but she is she is gonna go anyway and she does you know she does make it out and she does it does end on a sort of hopeful note for her but 
you still can't like you can't discount all the many 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 awful things that happened on the on the way up you know yeah no okay but um yeah so so indiana like like in the same way that that south carolina presented like one quote unquote solution to the problem and North Carolina proposed another solution to the problem. Indiana is more about like it is the the reason why things go bad is because white folks do get uncomfortable with this large, successful farm full of black free black people. Yeah. Yeah. And they they do get so uncomfortable about that that they come in and they smash everything. So it's it's in that way it's it's part of the same the imagery is very consistent. That's very yeah. It's, that's it's very part cool. of the part of the same tension, but um, it's also more about just like okay, how how where do we go? How do we get there? And what like what are we trying to do? Even yeah, because it sounds like he's very deliberately cut the story off before it can even engage with what would bubble over into the civil war. Or, yeah, it's you know, not it's not interested in being a civil war book. Like even in the in the North Carolina bit, where I thought for a second we might be getting into that. Like that was that was the last time I thought. You know, is this is this book? Um, <laughs> how historically accurate are we? What what year is it? <laughs> yeah, sure. And that is that. Does it like take pains to not be in a specific year, or does it just kind of? I don't think it ever does mention the year, and we do like one of Cora's favorite kind of books to read is almanacs which do have the year on them so huh. there are plenty of opportunities for us to get a year if whitehead wanted us to have one but i think we're just meant to think you know we're somewhere in the couple of decades preceding the civil war yeah. at least sure the cotton gin exists okay but other than that <laughs> i don't really know what to tell you um all right i think i don't know that i have any other questions um i did i pulled a quote from that NPR interview where he references Cora as a living exhibit. And I think that's specifically in reference to one section in the book. But I was also, that quote just popped out at me as a like, I don't know, it resonated with what I try to think about when we talk about books that are set in this time period. Yeah. So to, and, to give just a little bit of context yeah. with, um, in South Carolina, when she's working, one of the things that she does is she is part of this living exhibit in a museum. Mm -hmm. And so she does shifts like being part of a like a a living diorama, basically, where one is like, you know, scenes on a slave ship and one is like a slave in the house knitting. And then another one's like a slave out in the field, you know, picking picking crops. Yeah. And. The and she talks to the the person who runs these exhibits about you know the inaccuracies because there are plenty and he says basically you know we we if we have to make some allowances for reality like the room can only fit so many <laughs> oh, so many things in it and like people don't always want to be super uncomfortable so we're trying to like give them we're trying wow. to give them a taste of of like life elsewhere. But within, you know, certain confines. Yeah. Oof. Okay. Yeah. So what, were, what was the thing you were well, going to say? Just that, like, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about this book because it, it does seem, one of the things that seems to set it apart is that it's not just bear witness to this story that is based on, you know, based on a true story. Like, it's like 12 Years a Slave was a very affecting and important film. And one of the things that it i think did very well what had to do with its like its aesthetic and the way that it presented the pain of that reality um but it was also a kind of like based on a true story bear witness to the history that we don't talk about properly and haven't learned yeah. the right lessons from and i was initially i was a little worried and not like worried from the context of doing an hour-long yes. mm -hmm. comedy book podcast about it not worried about <laughs> you know not worried about it in any other way but i was a little worried that it that the book would be trying to do that because you know like i i can i can come and i can like tell you the things that happened and then we can both like shake our heads and say how bad slavery was and i don't think that's like 
that's not a good discussion, but it's also the one that's in our lane as yeah, white dudes. Yeah. So I don't know. So but, so it's um, interesting to have this feel have this book specifically mess around with the timeline, mess around with how things are structured. Because I think the other interesting way to go about it from a strictly historical perspective is something more akin to what like what the National Museum of African American History is doing in DC, which is like you put this horrible part of American history that has all sorts of modern uh, effects that are still ongoing in concert and in conversation with a celebration of the culture that has come out of it. Um, And that's a tough line for like, you know, a a book focusing on a single protagonist to, to do. Um, Right. And I, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm also just like, I'm always excited to 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 find that what I assume is going to be there is is actually like way more interesting and engaging. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And it gives it creates opportunities for other like synapses to fire and other connections. Well, I just I just made. I just thought it was a, an interesting way to approach the subject matter that like based on the like first quarter or so of the book just the Georgia part I was not sure it, it was like I, I thought I knew what the book was going to be and then it was something else. Sure. Sure. Um, to close, I guess we aren't going to spend a lot of time on this, but I did make the um, decision, I guess Uh-oh. to read the uh, national review online review of this book. Sure. And it is, it is broadly positive, but um, it describes the book and whitehead as like preachy. Mm. and of like being a social studies teacher Mm. um he says the author takes to teaching this is a review by um jay nordlinger sounds like a name you would call a nerd in like an 80s college movie it's unfortunate hey nordlinger oh man Um, the author takes to teaching and preaching he's the social studies teacher with one didactic paragraph after another the evil that americans did to the red man for example parentheses in point of fact some evil ran both ways in parentheses can't whitehead assume that people know this i'm reminded of the sitcoms i grew up on in the 1970s and 80s not all of them produced by norman lear always making sure that social points were driven home in purse-lipped ways um as a rule teaching in a novel should be accidental i think not bluntly striven for and he basically says stick to history Neat, because that's just not... like just like just stick to the facts, man. Like the oh, facts are bad enough. You don't have to do all this. Preaching. Well, if the facts were bad enough, stuff would have gotten better by now. It's like <laughs> that's the real unfortunate thing. Well, I just I, I wanted to, and we could spend a whole another podcast I, I don't just tearing this article that. down. I don't, I don't want to do, do that. that. But what I what I do want to do is to the, to the point he makes specifically. I mean, for one, like don't come for Norman Lear stuff, like. <laughs> If you're going to use something as an example of why doing a thing is bad, maybe don't do it with something that is like widely beloved and critically acclaimed. So maybe start with that. Um, But the second thing, can't Whitehead assume that people know this? No. No, you can't. No. Just just take yours and my experiences as a starting point. Yeah. Like, when's the last time you thought about the Underground Railroad? Like... In a, you know, the, un- the underground railroad. In a real specific <laughs> way, not regularly. Like, I think I there mean, are... I think, yeah, people like, maybe learned about it in civics class in, like, elementary school, but... I don't... Like, you don't... I feel like I if, spend... If you... Yeah, if you don't... I, I feel like if you don't set aside specific time to like research it and think about it, probably you haven't thought about it, and definitely you haven't, like, challenged assumptions about it that you might have no and i think the average certain i don't know my my experience was that i was not putting it i was not recontextualizing it as i was learning new things like it was not it's not a part of history that i am regularly that specific part of the civil war era or the lead up to it is not a thing i am like i can recall in my education being asked to revisit as we kind of said earlier, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the part of the book where Harriet Tubman did the stuff. Let's move on because slavery ended. So let's move on. Right. 
Um, but um, and it made it made me think of this study that made the rounds um, earlier this year, back in April. This was a study um, that involved 1,350 American adults and millennials were around 31% of the sample, whatever that happens to mean for this particular data yeah, set. Yeah. But um, one third of all Americans got the like way lowballed the number of people who were killed in the Holocaust. And almost half of people could not name a single concentration camp. And knowing those facts certainly isn't like the only thing to think about when you think about this stuff. But if you don't think about the scale of it, then it becomes easier to downplay it or like we've talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like in conclusion, like, no, don't just assume that people know things. And maybe if a book has a point of view, you can't be mad at the book just because it like makes you uncomfortable or you feel like you're being preached at. Yeah. I don't know, my dude. (laughs) Again, that, that is the, uh, it sounds like that is the negative rather than my curious reaction to, huh, some of the facts in this book seem like they're actually referencing things that are a little out of time. What's that about? Why did he do that? And this guy's like, no, that doesn't fit. Get out. I didn't order that. I didn't ask for that. And it goes against what I thought this experience would be, which yeah. that's the actually the mark of good art <laughs> what people walk in are like i thought it was gonna be this and it's provoking me to this other very very strong reaction yeah and the, the book is and I, I brought it up a little bit in that long passage i read but um the book does pointedly bring up like the, you know you, this is america my dudes yeah, um, yeah. This, this is a little bit we get from ridgeway's perspective um the other patrollers were boys and men of bad character. The work attracted a type. In another country, they would have been criminals, but this was America. And I think that if, if you can't see the parallels between like that sentiment and the kinds of things we see, um, like immigration agents yep. and like and border patrol folks yep. doing here in 2018, then you're just like not thinking about it hard enough. Yeah, yeah. There, are, it, it's not just ignorance. There are cultural forces at work that reward that ignorance, um, or reward that blind eye for certain. Or not people. even, or you know, blind eye or like willful cruelty. Yep, it just depends on the person. Yeah. Um, yep. Well, anyway, thanks for telling me about this book, Andrew. Yeah, this is a book. I it, I really enjoy it's really good it's a good read i'm not gonna say that it's like a easy breezy beautiful fun read but it is it is a it is a good book and it reads real fast because it is it's just really well crafted and um and it keeps things varied enough to be to hold your interest sure partly because it does so much jumping not just between viewpoints but also between like the different states and and the things that are going on so well neat um, if you, the listener, have read this book and have thoughts about it that you want to share, you can shoot us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on our social media feeds, twitter.com slash overduepod and facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, we had a busy week last week with two episodes and a bunch of people reached out, including our good friend Emily Wilson, uh, Julia, Stacy, Mo, Taylor, Ellen, Clara, Melissa, Garrett, Steve, Holden, Kira, Kelly, Kate, Tom, Amy, Cheyenne, Megan, and many more. Thanks for hitting us up throughout the week. Helps us. Can, uh, we, can we say that Emily Wilson, translator of the Odyssey, is a good friend because she's mentioned our show twice? That's like, what I, I that's just the... implied. Okay. So I'm just making not, sure. I don't know if we can say it, but I did say it. I Andrew... don't want to misrepresent our relationship, but unless she specifically <laughs> denies it, we are good friends with yes. her. Uh, Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? <laughs> they should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the social pages Craig mentioned, plus uh, links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. If you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, do rate and review us because it helps us rise in the rankings and it makes the show look real good. We are cruising toward 1,000 ratings. Get We're us there. 800, 839 right now, and we both have a really good time reading the uh the feedback that we get on that page um also up on overduepodcast.com we have a link to our patreon page you can go there 
and um, find out ways to support the show and to get some stuff. Like if you are enjoying our Stop Homer Time episodes, you can get those a little bit early if you if you support the show at a certain level. Um, we also have a new listener page. If you are recommending the show to new people, point them to that page, and those are some episodes that we enjoy and we think represent this show pretty well. I just put up next month's schedule. Here it is. Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank, The Tower Treasure, which is the first Hardy Boys book, Franklin W. Dixon. Uh, our friends Margaret and Sophie are going to come on and talk to you all about Love Story by Eric Siegel. Then we're going to talk about Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mue and Suffer the Children by Craig DeLuey. That, so, well, that last one will be a bonus episode. Yes, that will be a month. bonus episode that will drop sometime uh, mid-August for folks who want who will be able to join us for that recording. So. And then um, Patreon folks will get our next serving of Stop Homer Time about, um, I forget which books they even are, like eight and nine, I eight think. Eight and nine, later um, this week. Should be later this week, yeah. Okay, everybody, uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, get at us with feedback if you have it. And until next week, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. <laughs>